You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. If you haven't visited my blog, theproducersperspective.com lately, go check it out. We redesigned it. It has a whole new look, some video, lots of cool stuff, including a way to get my book for free. Go to theproducersperspective.com today. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. This is the Producer's Perspective podcast, and you've joined us on a very, very special day. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I get to learn so much about all different areas of the industry, especially the ones that I know really nothing about. And today is one of those days because today's guest works in a discipline that of all the disciplines in the theater, I probably know the least about. Please welcome to the podcast Broadway hair and wig designer, Mr. Charles LaPointe. Welcome, Charles. Thanks, Ken. So, Charles, has worked on dozens of Broadway shows. I'm not going to list all the credits, but if you go to the his IBDB page, you'll see him out. You'll see them all. But this season, SpongeBob, The Band's Visit, as well as Anastasia, Motown, Color Purple, and lots, lots more. So my first question, which came first? Your love of hair or your love of the theater? Theater first. I was a performer when I was younger, 17 to 25, and then just realized that I didn't wasn't cut out for it and wanted something more than I think. I wasn't willing to sacrifice, I think, what it needed to have, and I just wanted to stay in theater, so I started various aspects of, you know, backstage and got into wardrobe. And then I met Tom Watson, who took me under his wing and showed me how to do it. And, all right. It was a little sorted, more sorted than that, but it's all right. <laughs> Here we are today. And were you a musical actor? A musical theater. Yeah. Musical dancer, theater. primarily a dancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And before you fell into the hair and wig room, 
wardrobe. Right. Any other disciplines that you looked at? You said backstage. Yeah, that was it. I worked for a costume designer when I was 17 or 18 while I was performing and became her milliner. So I basically am self-taught when it comes to any kind of handwork. You know, it was all handcrafts and feathers and bows and creativity, you know, because I had no idea what the hell I was doing. It was just put stuff on a hat and made it, you know, pretty. <laughs> Were you a crafty kid? Yeah, I would say I was, you know. Uh, I certainly was always kind of off by myself doing my own thing, living in my imagination, which, I tell you, is something that has not left in <laughs> 50 years. <laughs> now, well, all designers have to have great imaginations, that I do know. Yeah. So when you got into that room, you said you found yourself into in, in the, this room. Was there a moment where you were like, Oh, this is home for me. Like I, I fi- this is where I belong. That actually didn't happen. I, I think I got into it around '92. That's how, how I was introduced into it. And then it wasn't until I did the first production of Color Purple that I realized, oh, this is this feels right. You know, this is what I should follow and pursue. And I've always had this ability to make. You know, African American hair and wigs look somewhat realistic on people, or at least convince people I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Can't tell you the number of times I got caught in the subway, you know, checking out people's scalps and how hair grew from their head and, you know, how it faded from the hairline. You know, everything I could teach myself to do, I was doing. And I, I really did get caught quite a bit. <laughs> people started giving cuckoo eyes and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I've actually never thought about that before. A set designer will do research by looking at photos yeah. or costumes even, but how do you do research on hair other well, than... Well, you look at pictures, you know, we do all the same kind of studying and whatnot. But I find it more interesting to see what people are doing on the streets. And you, you get that, you know, so many pictures that we look at are posed or studied or fashion-oriented and whatnot. Whereas you're looking at people on the street, you're really seeing how they manipulate their own hair, how it grows. I mean, most hair, what you see on Broadway a lot of the times is the prettified version of everything. You know, it's not reality. And yet I, my goal is to always make it as realistic as possible. So even if I'm doing an 18th century white wig, I like to do a front on it to make it feel like it's growing out of the head, even though, even at the time, it wasn't meant to. So that moment on Color Purple when you were like, oh... This is what I'm supposed to be doing. What was it that made you think that? Was there a, something happened or you just felt at home? Well, to be honest, I was... The, we started it in, started it in uh, Atlanta. The first production was there. And I met LaShawns for the first time. And she came into my studio and she looked at me and I got the look. Like, how's this honky white boy going to be able to do my hair? So I was nervous, you know, I'd never met someone like LaShawns who was, you know, an established performer in the theater. It was really, this was a big deal, you know, I had a lot to prove. I was working, Paul Taswell, the costume designer at the time, is one of my dearest friends. We had just started developing a strong relationship then, so I really wanted to do well by everybody in this thing, especially, you know, myself and my studio. So I was sweating, and we got through the fitting, and she kind of expressed what she wanted, and I... I heard what she had to say, and I talked to Paul, and you know, I think I turned white halfway through it, just because I was so overwhelmed by the size of the show and the importance of it, all the hype behind it that was going on, and really wanting to be a part of that, you know. So went back to the studio and rounded up my team. And I was like, "Look, kids, we gotta, we gotta make this work." So somehow, bear with me. We're gonna get through it. And we went down to Atlanta with the wigs, and I think at the time there were about twenty-seven wigs in it. I put that wig on her head, and she looked at me, and she started crying. <laughs> I started tearing up. 
Really? I she mean, I still cried. do. I mean, not cry, but, you know, there was that kind of like, oh, you know, moment where we both got very emotional because she found the character and I had met or exceeded her expectations of what could be, what could be accomplished, you know. So it's, it all kind of went from there. And the first time we got on stage in, on Broadway, Everybody was up there, and, you know, then I got very emotional. I totally, I still get all very verklempt when I think about it, because it was the moment where I realized, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is it. It's a, great, it's a great moment, because actually I hear that type of moment from writers, from actors. There's just a moment where it all clicks, and they start to, there is an emotional feeling about it. Did you know it was good? Like, leading up to, before you put it on her head, were you like, this is great work, this is going to be great? Or were you like, I <laughs> no, have no idea, we'll no, see what I, To be honest with you, I even now, I've been doing this now for, what, 25 years, and I still doubt every single thing I do. Literally, there's always that little voice in the back of my head that says, "You really, they're going to catch you, you have no idea what the hell you're doing. Why is that? Because, well, I'm self-taught. You know, we, I don't have, a lot of people in my studio come from programs around the country, you know, different schools that teach this work, or they've apprenticed with other companies or other designers or whatnot. I didn't really have that. I really kind of just fell into it. And though Tom was my mentor, I was always kind of just, I always felt like I was experimenting with it. It was never something I had the skill to really fall back on, you know? It was being produced as I was going along, and the quality was based on the practice of it. So I think when it when it came to the the moment and when I looked I looked at it and I really just it, it's hard to explain because it was such a it was so instantaneous and so unexpected and I, I got the same feeling when I did the Wiz live version for TV and I remember standing there with Paul again and Cookie Jordan who makeup designer and my friends Lou and Dave Elsie who are prosthetics people who did all the, the main the line the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and I remember standing there with them and all of us looking at you know, what we produced, and all of us just being so overwhelmed by the moment. Because I think, in the end, we're all kids still, you know, when it comes to this. <laughs> and as frustrating as it can be with producers and trying to get budgets correct and, you know, working through all the mire, you know, there's still that sense of, oh, my God, I did this, you know. I can't believe I did this. Let's talk about the self-taught part of it. How, how did you teach yourself? Like, what was your process to figure out how to do this stuff. Well, basically, Tom handed... we were He was in the opera a lot at that point. Um, he was, we were traveling the country together. We were in the midst of a relationship as well, so it was easy because we were together 24-7. But we were traveling to different opera companies, and basically I had no job. I was 25 years old and on the road, you know, with nothing really to do. So he basically showed me how to tie a knot and handed me a wig and said, build this. <laughs> He really just threw me into it, and I had to figure it out as I was going along. And I mean, he'd show me things here and there, or why a knot wasn't tied correctly, or how there was too much hair. I mean, the first wig I built could have really been three wigs. It took me about two weeks. It was so thick and whatnot, and we had a good laugh over that. But, you know, over time, you learn. I figured out my own way. You know, he had a very naturalistic way of going about things. It wasn't hairdressery. You know, neither he was trained, trained as a hairstylist. I was not. I was, it was all made up, you know, how, I, how to roll a wig or set it or, you know, braid it or whatnot. I wasn't really taught how to do that. I had two sisters whose hair I was always into. And being gay, I never wanted to go into hair like as a hairstylist because I was like, this is the last thing I need, you know. And uh, 
here I am. You know, it just kind of ended up being that. So I had an affinity for it, and I think that helped me get through the learning process. But really, it's just a matter of trial and error. Do you think your lack of being a stylist actually helps make your hair more realistic? Because, look, people who do their own hair, most of the world does their own hair, right? Yeah. Most of the world is not trained as a hairstylist. Right. So do you think that actually helps the fact that you just figure it out just like most people figure it out? They go out into the world that way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look at it this way. There are, what, now a dozen of us really working consistently on Broadway? And I would say most of them have a hair background. Some of them have primarily a wig background. And then there are the few of us that had neither background to pull from. We're just, again, making it up as we go along. And it's just all stylistic. I think if you go into this business with a style, then you find your own way and people glom onto that. It's when you don't really have that naturally that I think it's more of a struggle. Then it becomes a little bit more about equations and about systems, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't really have any of that stuff. So it's it's constant mayhem, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Even to this day, I really go to set a wig and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Why does every wig in this show look like it's been the same hairdresser? You know. So tell me, I'm going to ask a very simple question. Yeah. Why do we even need wigs on Broadway? So why are wigs required in a Broadway show? For me, I remember like people, you know, as an 18-year-old seeing my first Broadway show or a 16-year-old, I was like, wait, that's not real hair? Like, <laughs> that's a wig? So tell me why we even need them. Well, first of all, so let's say, let's take Hello, Dolly. All right. You've got a period piece, turn of the century. Those hairstyles took time to produce. If you try to do Bette Midler's hair, let's assume she has hair that's long enough to do this. Every night, a hairdresser would have to go into her hair. It would take an hour and a half, two hours. Maybe you could do it in an hour. When the wigs come in and save time, they basically, we can do all the work off of the person's head, create the style, put it on them, and off they go. They're in the period. We basically are the topper. We're what you see. Costumes and wigs, that's what you're really looking at, because that really... You can have an empty set. You can have, you can, that lighting will, you know, shade the mood, but the, the costume and the hair really kind of put you in the period very immediately, you know. So that, really, that's why you need it. And then you have an ensemble of 12 and they're playing 47 characters. Wigs are great because they allow you to change character and keep going. I mean, again, it all depends upon budget and whatnot. Sometimes a hat will substitute for wig and whatnot to change the, the character. But it really does save a tremendous amount of time, you know, effort to have the wigs there to produce. Does that make any sense? <laughs> uh, I just wanted that simple, because so many people, I think, just wonder, like, wait, I don't even get it. Are there moments when you look at someone and say, like, oh, I know, I know we could do a wig here, but actually the natural hair may work out better. Like, is that, does that even happen? Yeah, it does happen. We... Oftentimes, when we're doing a wig for some, mostly if there's a show, let's say a play, you know, there are eight people in it. Three of those people are women, and those are the people we're focusing on hair-wise. If one person needs a wig, let's say her hair's thin, but we like the what, what her hair's doing, but the hair's thin, we we will build her a wig in order to give her a little bit more volume, a little bit more something, you know, build it up a little bit. It becomes difficult when you have one person in a show out of eight in a wig. It's much more obvious that something is a little different. Not that you'd notice they're wearing a wig, but that you f can feel there's a little shift in the balance. Oftentimes, I try to push more than one wig in the show. 
just simply to balance out the the natural from the what is unnatural, you know, and bring it all closer together so that the lines more more blurred. Oftentimes, if I see an actor that a lot of actors actually ask for wigs. So we are recreating their hair. So we take them into the shop, we match their hair as best we can, curl pattern, texture, all that stuff, and then basically recreate their hair to put on their head. So tell me a little bit about that process for you. So you get hired on a new musical, right. so something that hasn't been existed hasn't existed before. You get thrown a script. Yeah. What what's your first step? What do you do? Panic. <laughs> My assistants basically sit down and they go through the show and they see where the changes would be. Then we sit down with the designer and we, they, we go through their perspective on it. The costume designer. The costume designer. We go over the sketches. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of the same costume designers over and over and they trust me. So they're basically doing an outline and I'm going in to fill in the blanks. So we'll go through everything and then we, we come up with numbers. We create a budget. We set it to the producers, they yay, nay, we have to trim, we have to, we can add to, you know, just depending on what it's calling for and what the needs are and what the constraints are. And then, uh, I think I forgot the question. <laughs> Your process. Process, yeah. And then we start the head wrapping and building of the wigs. So we bring the actor in, sit them down, take their picture, wrap them up in terms of a prep. Then we take a plastic bag, put it over their head, and we proceed to tape all the way around the plastic bag, draw their hairline in. So we have their head. When we take that off, we put that on a canvas block, stuff it out, and then we're able to build from the replica of their head. So that when I go to put that wig on them, when it's all finished, what I'm looking for is that kind of whisper sound as it kind of goes down their head. That lets me know that it fits, you know, when when there's no gapping, there's no billowing, there's no sitting away from the nape. It all just kind of slips right down to the, the nape. How long does it take to make a wig? It depends on the person making it. I would say, on the average, it's probably about a week. So very labor-intensive. It's labor. It's about 40 hours. I mean, it's you're sitting over a over this netting, knotting hair by hair. You know, sometimes, And we do double knots, because so, I like them to be... We do a lot of dyeing of roots into wigs. So I double knot all the wigs in order to keep them from separating. So in the design process, costumes are coming first for you. You're second in that overall. Or in conjunction with. Yeah, in conjunction. And the costume designer has to have the idea first of what the whole overall look is. And then I come in. And, you know, let's say there's something that he has and the character needs to be a redhead. And the designer has this specific idea of what they're looking for. I will come in and look at the actor and say, well... I know this is what you've drawn, but I think this will actually suit them better based on their face shape or their coloring or, you know, whatnot. And then we shift and we, we play a dance with all that stuff until we figure out what's going to work best. And again, most of the time I'm throwing it up in the air and hoping that instinct gets me through. And so what about so good. collaboration with the actor? Do you find that actors come in and go like, oh... I want it to feel like this for the character. I want how much collaboration. Oh yeah, is there? yeah. There's a lot of talk. It's constant talk. You know, Lashans and I are now doing Donna Summer, so there's always a, a dialogue going on between the two of us. You know, it was a bit of a challenge when we did it in La Jolla with a lot of things, and mostly with the crews, just because they weren't. It was such a huge show, and they're just not set up for that kind of thing. So some of the things that we had planned on didn't really work out as well. So she and I had a chance to sit down and talk about that, and you know. We're in a redesign process, you know, all theaters collaboration. You have to you have to talk about it. You can't 
we're not islands, you know. That's why, I mean, I'm only as good as my crew is, and I have an incredible team behind me that keep me looking good. You know? If I don't have them, I, I can't do this. It's just impossible. It's impossible. And communication with them, communication with the actor, the designers, the director, you know, we all talk. That's what makes Hamilton such an amazing piece is that even now, on the fifth, we're on our fifth, sixth production, fifth production, it's still a constant dialogue between all the departments and how it's going to be because each time it changes, it shifts and changes a little bit. I'm always redesigning that show. The hair <laughs> always, it's about the actor. It's no longer about a character. So every single time a new person goes into that show, I have to rethink what that person is in the show. What percentage of Hamilton is wigs? Is it all wigs? All wigs. Wow. I mean, the men the men are pretty much themselves. It's mostly haircutting and dyeing, things like that. A lot of the Hamiltons are wigged, some of the Jeffersons. All the women are wigged. Very rarely do we now do it without a woman being wigged. And that's, that's mostly to control the style. It's not really about their hair not being good enough. Their hair, we're basically recreating their hair on stage. But this way, if they want to dye it or cut it, or they have a little more flexibility, and we're keeping what was originally their look. So you mentioned before you've been doing this for about 25 years now. How has your niche design world changed in those two and a half decades? What's different about hair design today than it was 25 years ago? <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if it's changed. You know, as we come in, I mean, what's nice to see is that a lot of people that started in our studio, Tom, Tom and I actually share a studio. What started there has now branched out into these people also being represented on Broadway with their own shows. So they've taken what they internally have or organically have and mixed it up with what we've all learned together. Because a lot of these people and I have grown up in this business together. And I think everyone has created their own style and feel for it. So you're getting more variety. Whereas maybe 25 years ago, there were only three or four people doing this. There are now 12, 15 people who design on Broadway. So you're getting a bigger perspective. You know? You're getting people who are very stylistic. They're very hairdresser oriented. So things are very styled. And then you're getting a, other people who are, do a much more organic kind of naturalistic way. And it's, you know, neither way is good or bad. It's just what it is. You know? And it, it pleases different people. So I think you just now see more variety on stage than you did before. It sounds like such a artisan type craft, what you do, the building and the design of weeks. Has technology helped that over the last couple of days or is it the same? You're just... We do the same. It's still the same process. It's by hand. I mean, there are, you can buy machine made wigs, but that takes the craft out of the work. And I mean, that's what makes what we do what it is, is because we all, it's all handcrafted. I mean, we still use machine-made wigs, but then we manipulate them and change them to be more realistic. So we'll add a top or we'll add a new front to it. We make it re as realistic as we can make it and still fit within the parameters of the budget. So technology, I'm not so, I'm not, I don't really think it's, certainly hasn't affected me. Not being technologically savvy anyway, I'm lucky I can turn my cell phone on, but yeah, I'm not really, it's really still a handcraft for us. Do you think it will always remain that way? What, what, what does hair design look like 20 years from now? Well, this is an interesting question because what makes, in my opinion, what makes your style your style, especially if you are... There are wig designers who do not make wigs. They have them made and they style them. There are the other wig designers like myself and like Tom who we're, we're hands-on with the process. 
And that's where our style comes in. So it's the blending of color. It's the understanding of perspective from the stage to the house. How color is laid in. To me, the art of it is the laying of the color. It's not the craft is the building of the wig, and the colorization of the wig is the, is the art of it. And what I'm actually most interested in, and if there's any aspect of it I'm most interested in, it's that. It's the laying of color and how it will play on someone's head. Do you get fights with lighting designers then all the time? No. Is there is is that one of the designers that you have to collaborate with often because they can affect the color? Yeah, not so much. You no, know, costumes I think is more affected by lighting. Hair is, you know, the pigments are different. The it's it's not as it's not affected in the same way. And I, I don't think you think about it as much because it's not reflecting. It's not a big enough canvas to reflect light in a in a negative way. Unless maybe you're talking about platinum blondes, which do have a a different effect just because they're almost in, in, in and of themselves so synthetic in their color because very few people have that in hair color in real life. It's not it's not as affected with the lighting designer or the set designer. I deal more with the choreographer or the director choreography because sometimes hair can get in the way of the choreography or if it's flying around the face, you know, everyone starts to freak out. Any stories like that where you design a wig, it gets on stage, beautiful design, and then there's a moment in the show where you're like, Oh, that is absolutely not going to work. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Happens all the time. (laughs) Anything you remember? Oh, like Hamilton. We just did the Philip tour. And I mean, we went, we had a girl with long blonde hair. We recreated that. And I did a shorter cut for her because we wanted to get some variation in the the lengths on the show. And she has the sweetest, like, homespun face. And we're trying to make these girls edgy. And nothing we were doing was remotely helping this girl look edgy because she's just not that look, you know. So we're fighting against type here to begin with, but that wig got shorter and shorter and more rooted and more spiky and then pompadoured and, you know, all the time you're trying to create the best character or person you can create. So we spent quite a bit of time with that, a lot of frustration. But beyond that, it's pretty easy. (laughs) Should there be a Tony Award for what you do? No. I think, you know, I think with the amount of people doing it now, it would be nice to be recognized in some way. The Drama Desk does it nice, which was really sweet of them. I was lucky to be nominated for that first year, which was really, I mean, it was so, it was actually quite overwhelming. I didn't expect it to be so nerve-wracking, you know? But it was very nice of them to do that for us. And I think, especially nowadays, with the amount of people doing it, it would be nice to at least say, hey, nice job. <laughs> if you could get all the producers of Broadway shows in a room, And you could tell them one thing that you think we don't know about hair design, what would it be? It ain't cheap. I think that would be the biggest thing. That the expectation for what the cost is. I mean, this is a handcraft. It's time-consuming. Hair is expensive. Hair has gotten way expensive in the past five years. Gone up like 60%. Why is that? It's harder to get now, I guess. I guess that's really what it is. Where did they get it? Oh, I mean, is it, it just comes like from a everywhere. Les Mis story of Cosette, or sorry, Les Mis story of Fantine cutting her hair for. I mean, there is, there is that. I mean, there are whole towns of people that grow their hair and they cut it and sell it off. When you're poor, it is a, a commodity that you can sell. You know, a lot of hair came from Russia. A lot of hair came from Spain. You know, that was the good Caucasian hair. I mean, by good, I mean it was the the finest quality virgin hair you could get. Now even that's becoming scarcer. We look a lot now toward India and Indian hair because Indian hair can be stripped down and dyed and still retain the qualities of Caucasian hair without breaking apart. And yet it still has, unlike Asian hair, which is a thick cuticle, that can really be, it can be permed, it can be dyed, it can be stripped of color. and 
it still retains the property of hair without melting. If you tried to do all those things to Caucasian hair, it would melt. Basically, it would just fall apart. You'd burn it. So a lot of Asian hair, they use a lot for, you know, if you go to the African-American stores, hair stores, you can see a lot of that kind of hair there because it's they can really, really get that perm in there and it still feels like hair. Like, we use a lot of that hair for African-American shows because they can get that texture going, you know? Uh, where Caucasian hair, you know, you... you use it for a lot, a lot of film work and things like that. You don't use it so much on... I don't use it so much on Broadway just because it's so expensive. You know, it's all about cost and what people are willing to pay. Is it all real hair or is there so some... I use only really hair, real hair, but there are synthetic hair you can get. A lot of... We're finding... All of us are kind of finding with a lot of these Asian hair stores is that they're mixing synthetic fiber into the human hair. So when we're going to dye it, it's taking, it's taking color differently, or it's not taking it at all, or it's not curling. Or, you know, you just have to wade through the, the masses of, well, I don't even know the word. <laughs> so you, though, just like a costume designer will go to a fabric shop, mood, or wherever, yeah, yeah, yeah. you will go to a hair store here in the city yeah. and just feel the hair and, yeah, and look you know, for color. We're and, looking for textures. And, I, you know, I know what I'm getting now in a lot, in a lot of places. I have a distributor in Bali. A few of us use Orlando Bossi, and he does deals a lot with um, Indian hair, and they'll do all the dyeing, and they perm it for us, and things like that. Again, I don't have a hairdressing background, a stylist background, so I've had to teach myself all these things, and I'm not really confident enough of any of it to just go ahead and do a whole head myself, so I oftentimes job that out, and they do the work for me. Yeah, and then I have a company in London where I get all my Caucasian hair. You know, Fascinating. It's I mean, all over the place. Like the world you just doesn't, you don't know exists. Yeah. All right, my last question, which is my genie question. Okay. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin, who was bald, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, comes to you and says, I want to thank you for your contributions to the theater by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway? Working on it, seeing it, any part of it gets you angry that you would like, ah, if only this were different. What would you ask this genie to wish away or change for you? I think really that you weren't fighting the same fight all the time. It's always the same discussion. And it's oh, it always comes down to money. And that's really, I wish that was the discussion we stopped. Everyone, and I understand the cost of producing a musical or even a play on Broadway is astronomically expensive but if you're gonna do it do it you know what it costs you've done it a hundred times why are we having the same argument we can trim where we can trim but there is just as there is for a producer or a director there's a bottom line for everybody of what you can do to make the vision happen so why don't we all get in a room together have the conversation together so we know where all the the cards lay on the table you know instead of this back and forth that's the most exhausting part that's what takes away the joy. Yeah, it's you know? certainly not why any of us got into business. It's not why we got into business. So, And you know what? You do have to deal with it. It's just part of what it is. But if there was one thing I could take away, it was the constant back and forth. <laughs> me too, actually. Ironically, me too. I'd love to just focus on just doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, and just lay it on the line. Like what the budget is. Can you do it for this amount of money? Yeah. If I'm able to give you this much, can you do it? And then you're like, well, yeah or no. Yeah, there is too much I find, you know, we forget sometimes, and I'm a part of this, that we're on the same team. There is a negotiating within your own team members 
instead of being like, hey, we're all trying to do the best. I got this. Will this work? Yes right. or no? And then right. you just go for it, and that's the end of it. Because the goal is the same, isn't it? Yeah. We're all trying to make the best show so that we all win. Yeah. A very good answer. Thank you for that. Thank you for educating me today. Who knew there were all these different hair stores around Manhattan? <laughs> uh, and I'm half Indian, so maybe I'll go try to sell some of my hair. There you go. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks, Ken. Don't forget to check out the newly redesigned theproducersperspective.com, which includes a way to get my book for absolutely nothing. Check out theproducersperspective.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.